Thank you, Pastor Adam. And I add my word of greeting as well to those from Church of the Redeemer who are listening in with us and and many past members who have said that they will be uh, joining us as well. We're good to be with you virtually. If you would pray with me also. Father, we are thankful to be able to gather virtually together your church, a universal picture of that. But yet we're saddened, I am for sure, as I look at an empty sanctuary where we are this morning and many that cannot gather. And that is not, we could say, your will. You want your congregations to gather in fellowship, in community. And we long for that to be restored. But it also does give us a picture of what we ultimately long for, the church around your throne, which we will have a picture of today for all eternity. So Father, as we come to your word, we long to master it, but more than that, to be mastered by your word. Would you do that, Lord Jesus? Amen. As I begin, if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn to chapter 20, which we will be going through this morning. First, a quick uh, story. Many years ago, I uh, was out west with our family at a, uh, a riding ranch, a spotted horse ranch, and each one of us had a horse that we would ride on, and they were quite appropriately named. Mine was named Outlaw, and Outlaw was a, a troublemaker got into everybody else's business. I kind of enjoyed that. But my brother-in-law had a horse named Fudd. And Fudd sounds like Dud. That horse was appropriately named also. It was quite lethargic and kind of um, just lounged around. It was hard to get going. But Fudd is also an acronym that fits appropriately for what our culture globally is experiencing. Fudd is fear uncertainty, and doubt. With COVID-19, with the water issues we've had here in Union County, with quarantines, all kinds of things that promote FUD. And this fear drives us to wait, waiting for schools to reopen, waiting for the market to recover, waiting for the John Hopkins site to show us where's the latest cases, waiting to boil water, here in Union County. But the question becomes, what are you waiting for ultimately? I would say there's something bigger, there's something better that we're waiting for. It's been said there are two sure things in life, death and taxes, but there's really one that's even more sure. Our Lord Jesus Christ will return. Some will be ushered into life some to death. But we need not wait with FUD. We need not wait with fear. And hence the big idea this morning is that we should avoid the wrong fear, anxiety, and embrace the right fear, which is reverence for the one who has authority to cast into hell or to call into heaven. Now that's much easier said than done. We are at a time and era where all it takes is for someone to sneeze and instead of running and saying, God bless you, we're thinking God has cursed you. So we seek to protect ourselves. And our suit of armor now 
has become not a suit of armor, but rather the mask, hoping that it will protect us from this virus. On top of that, we change our greetings. Capital City Baptist has instituted a bow to one another. I I love that. But we've decided upon our own greeting here at Redeemer. It will be the foot tap. We'll keep our distance, but tap the foot. It'll help with dexterity and agility as well. Now here's a sermon within the sermon. Some of you might be thinking, oh, you're making light of something that is so serious. How dare you? Then on the flip side, some are saying, yeah, well, this is so statistically ridiculous and overblown. Look at comparisons to the flu. Of course we'll mock it. Did you hear the self-righteousness on both sides? In fact, we need to watch over the next few weeks for some new type of self-righteousness or enoughness to emerge. You allow your children to go there? What power of hand sanitizer or essential oil are you using? And how many times? You're getting on a plane or a bus? Or you got the virus. What did you do wrong? Let us not go to that type of self-righteousness. Let us continue to be a church of compassion. Now, I'm not saying to be presumptuous. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take precautions. But our truth is that protectiveness does not always protect. We need to be prepared. And with that thought in mind, with the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, we move into the second part of our series. As Pastor Adam said, we look at the end times, which surely promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Last week, Hunter preached on the very beginning in Genesis. We move to the end. But Hunter pointed out to us that every good story has certain parts. There's a setting, there's a plot, there's a climax, and there's a resolution. We will see each of those parts here in Revelation 20. And so on the website, if you can see it, there is a, an outline that you're welcome to use if it helps. But if you would now, please look along chapter 20 of Revelation. John writes, God speaks. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands." They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Over 2,000 years 
covered in one chapter. Here we got the setting of this chapter. And some might be thinking, come on, really? I, I can't picture this. A beast, a key, a chain, a dragon, a serpent. I, I know what you Christians are going to do. Next, you're going to say, oh, COVID-19 came from snakes. Ah, you're going to link this with uh, the virus with Satan. Uh, no, we're not, we're not going there. Don't worry about that. But you, you're saying in this passage, it's so crazy. Before I even got to the resurrection, you start daydreaming about some fairy tale. And then what really matters, my 401k is getting killed. Well, I'm glad you're listening. Because God's word is living, it's active, and it's more real than our fears about the coronavirus or school shutting down or our retirement. Jesus Christ will come back and your obedience to his commands for how to really be cleansed matter infinitely and eternally more than whether you remember to wash your hands after you touch that doorknob. So I'm glad you'll spend a few minutes with us and, continue, and, and consider eternity and what you're really waiting for. So in the setting, we have what we'll call the, the bad guys, the antagonists. There's the beast, the false prophet, who they we're going to hear about from uh, shortly. There's the mark of the beast that the rest of the dead here have. And that's simply put saying those who chose rather than to follow Christ, they said we will align ourselves with the way of the world, with the devil. There's Satan himself named and then there are the good guys there's the angel maybe christ there are christ's followers those who are called martyrs those who were said to be beheaded but that group is larger than just those who are beheaded it includes those who were burned in rome it was common to torch in the gardens those who were christians so they are included as well in that group of those who are beheaded, as well as all believers who are faithful through the ages. The saints in this picture are reigning in heaven. They have experienced the first resurrection. Their souls are in heaven with Christ. It's a spiritual paradise, not yet the physical. The rest of the dead will come for judgment at the return of Christ. That's our setting, but we have a plot as well. In verse 3, it reveals what this passage is about. The devil is bound, but he'll be released. He will be released, but then what? The passage is yet to tell us, but we do know the truth that Christ has bound Satan like a beast behind bars. He's like this picture of this pit bull that is raging, tugging, trying to get loose, but still, God has him on a leash. The truth is that Christ has bound Satan like a beast behind bars. Like that pit bull raging, but on a leash. The devil is prevented, but from something specific. Our passage says, he is prevented that he might not deceive the nations. That is his specific restraint upon which he is leashed. 
So therefore, now the gospel goes forth to the nations. Therefore, we can take our, our missionary pamphlet that we have, that we can pray for our missionaries, and it will take effect because the gospel goes forth. We can pray for the shepherds. We can pray for Abby Case. We can pray for the, re- the webs because the gospel is having effect because this raging lion, the devil, is leashed. He is powerful, but he is restrained in that respect. What is our proof that we can say the devil is bound now? We could go back to the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Binds. The word that Jesus used there is the same one that John uses here in verse 2 of Revelation 20. Elsewhere, Jesus says, the ruler of this world will be thrown out now. Thrown out. The word that Jesus used there is the same word in verse 3 of chapter 20, showing us that this binding of Satan has taken place when it took place at Christ's first coming and especially at the cross. He is not cast out in the sense of some physically, spatially not here in any way. He is, ca- he is bound, he is bound in the sake, for the sake of being restricted. He's still a raging lion, he's still the prince of the power of the air, but he is prevented from causing the gospel not to go forth to the nations. Now we need to consider the symbols, the symbols in this passage that are so, we'll say even exciting and important for us to get. There's the key, the chain, the thousand years. And the truth is this, in this apocalyptic book, God uses the significance of symbols to arrest our attention. Now, I want to make this point, and it will sound uh, a little scary at first. I don't take all the Bible literally, okay? And you don't either. When Jesus says, I am the door. You get it that he doesn't mean I'm a physical door, but that he is an opening. Our mind does that. We realize this is a symbol. And it's because I and you respect God's word so much and sola scriptura, that it is our only rule of faith and practice, that we interpret God's word as he would have us to do. It is God-breathed. The Bible is as much a library of books of different genres as much as it is is a single book. And that's why we take these symbols, not literally, but as they are meant to be taken. So in this passage, when it speaks of a key, what it symbolizes is the authority that this angel had to come and bind Satan. The chain shows the restraint like a leash that he is bound. So I hope you agree with me that these are symbols. You would be alongside the Jews who would be reading this and realizing that this was apocalyptic literature and they would look for symbols like the numbers, like the numbers throughout the Bible where seven is a number of completeness. Three and a half, being half of seven, was a lesser, shorter time. 666 is the opposite 
of sevens. It is, God, it, is, it is opposition to God. It is man saying, I am the authority, is that sign. So 1,000 is a significant symbol too. We hear it six times, basically in the New Testament, all of those basically in this chapter. So we want to be careful not to, to overblow this symbolism and go too far with it. But we do want to realize that a thousand is ten, another number of completeness, cubed. So it is saying that it is a, a complete number. Further evidencing that it's a symbol. Think of this. When God says in the Old Testament, he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Is he saying that he doesn't own them on a thousand in first hill or a thousand in second? No. We know he's saying he owns them on all hills. So 1,000 is a symbolic number here. But the key point is this. Eschatology or the end times is not just about numbers and predictions, though that is important. It's more about the ethics. It's more about driving change and how we should live and respond to God's word. If you believe something will happen in the future, you should change something now. If you believe that someone was going to put that E. coli in your water in Union County, you would have bought some in advance or filled up your uh, water tub in advance. The future drives the present. Christ is coming back. What will that change with us? Christ is coming back, but when? So again, we think of this, this book is apocalyptic. And there are various views on this thousand years, when that will take place. The first is that of premillennialism. We'll hit these quickly. Pre means before. It's saying that there, was a, there will be a second coming before the millennium. And many in the premillennial camp will also point to a, a rapture that will come before that. Now, folks in the premillennial camp, they get the gold star, blue ribbon, and award for being passionate about the return of Christ. That is good. There are question marks. Premillennials tend, not all, tend to read Revelation chronologically. But Revelation is not written to be taken completely chronologically. In other words, in chapter 12, there's a woman who gives birth to a child, which is symbolizing Jesus. But back in earlier chapters, Jesus has already walked among the lampstands. This is not meant to be read sequentially. In chapter 19, there's a massive battle where just about everybody's destroyed. But then in chapter 20, they're back. John has vision after vision. I saw, I heard. These are visions. They're not meant to be taken step by step. They also envision the premillennials effectively two comings of Christ. It's hard to see that. In scripture there. Postmillennial, another view, is that the second coming comes through after this 1,000 years. Postmillennials get the ribbon for being the most optimistic that the gospel will be so successful and usher in a new age, effectively where uh, evil is removed. We could say there's, there's possibly a blind spot or a question mark there. 
maybe a bit too optimistic because sin and evil are not totally destroyed. We see that in this passage or just get the headline of a newspaper and we see that's not the case. Then there's amillennialism. Ah, meaning without. Pre, before, post, after. Ah, meaning no or without. That there's no literal 1,000 years. They, saying that the kingdom arrived with Christ at his first coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. That Christ now reigns in heaven. Amillennials get the ribbon for most common view of Christians over the last 2,000 years. It acknowledges a final evil battle where the enemy comes forth that we will see shortly, just before the end. There are concerns for some amillennials who maybe go too far, who, who take the symbolism so far that they lose touch with a literal physical history. Not all of them, but some of them. Some can lose focus on the literal imminent any moment return of Christ. So the thought is, aren't we all somewhat eclectic where we hear those views and say, I, I resonate with that, I question that. In some ways, most all of us are, are somewhat eclectic. But I would hope, as we think about this morning, that we would see that the thousand years has begun already. And we see that as we look at scripture upon scripture. We see that there are not just Jews now who believe, but that all nations are part of the kingdom. That the gospel has had effect because Satan is bound. We see evidence for this in Daniel, in 1 Thessalonians, in Revelation, throughout. But I hope there's agreement wherever you fall on your millennial view that the best is yet to come and that our eschatology should drive our ethics for our daily lives. And then we move into the, the climax of this story, of this passage of chapter 20. In verses 7 through 10, we hear this. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus was born to save sinners. Jesus was born to battle Satan. Jesus wins a battle at the temptation of, of Satan against Christ. Jesus wins a battle by win, uh, living a life without sin. Jesus wins a battle at the cross through the resurrection. Yet there is the war yet to come. Revelation puts that article, the, around this war. Satan is released in verse 7. Satan's purpose is to kill and to destroy, not just wound. In Revelation, even his own followers are tortured. 
Satan brings those into his camp, not so much by force, but by deception. So from the four corners of the earth, meaning all deceived of the nations who are aligned with Satan, assemble. And there's more about this battle really in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. And that's why we had Pastor Adam read that passage from Ezekiel where it spoke of Gog and Magog assembling against Israel. Gog and Magog are not particular nations that we are supposed to be looking for to come about and then that means the end times. They are again symbolic. They're complete forces of evil from the four corners. And so that message of hope for Israel back in Ezekiel is now placed as the ultimate hope for the Christian in the New Testament at this immense battle. So it's like in the Avengers movie where Loki tells Tony Stark, I have an army. Stark says, we have a Hulk. One who can with his strength defeat anyone in a second. And that's effectively what Christ does. The truth is that the greatest battle that will ever be won takes place in one and a half verses. Satan is tossed into the lake of fire along with the rest of his trinity and their followers. Satan, the beast, and the false prophet cast away. And we move to our resolution. In verses 11 through 15, we hear this. John tells us, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A courtroom is depicted here, a scene of judgment. And Revelation wants us to feel, not to, not just hear, but feel, see the greatness of Christ. The word megalos for great is used 80 times in Revelation. We are to feel the greatness of Christ. In the same way, this greatness is such that even inanimate creation is personified as fleeing in reverence of the Christ. And the truth for us is that we all must appear before the judgment seat. A sobering thought. Only those in the book of life may enter, and yet there is the judgment seat for all. Believers are responsible for their actions, but forgiven in Christ. For the unbeliever, the sea, the picture of the sea here, the sea is a place in revelation of fear and evil, and the unbelievers come forth. They are held accountable for words, deeds that condemn them. These verdicts are final. Death and Hades are mentioned. Death was a state of being. Hades, the holding place for the souls of unbelievers, just like paradise. 
uh, that Christ uh, speaks of to the thief on the cross. Paradise was the holding place, if you will, for the believer before the bodily resurrection, the day of judgment. Hell is a place of endless suffering. Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. The authority they exercised has come to an end. If you're not okay with this picture of punishment, it could be because we have too low of a view of sin and God's justice. And we can talk to Adam about that next week when he preaches on hell. But I love this passage in Revelation 20 because we hear, we see Christ. It's like seeing the dawn creeping up over the mountains in the distance. It's not full-blown yet for us now, but it's coming. You or I might be off on our millennial views. We might not see eye to eye on some symbol in Revelation and with the end times, but we all need to see clearly that Christ, who was the lamb slain for our sins, is coming back as the victorious warrior, the king of kings and lord of lords, which Revelation speaks of is written on his thigh where the warrior's sword would be. But Christ's true sword is his awesome and powerful word, which will cast the devil, the prophet, the beast into hell forever, along with their followers. In conclusion, I would say this. These times represent opportunity for the gospel. These end times should be ethical in how it affects us. For the unbeliever this morning who might be listening in, the question for you to answer honestly is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And be honest, why? What is in your heart of hearts that you're living for? And for the believer, I would encourage us with these silly acronyms to think of this, that we, rather than embracing FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, is to take the view of stud, to speak truth until death. Speak truth until death. Does that sound a bit overly dramatic? Most cases, yes. Not in light of what we're hearing in this passage and not in light of even now what our society is experiencing. So I give us two applications for the church and one for the individual. For the church, don't give up being the church. Hebrews 10 says that we should not give up meeting together. We should want to get together to encourage one another. Say to our, our church, I miss you. I hope you miss me. Being here together, worship, fellowship, being together. That's what the church is about. Pray that we can come back together and do that soon. In the meantime, don't give up meeting, encouraging other believers. The second application for the church is this. What is the most common thing that you're hearing in emails, phone calls? Two words, be safe. Our biggest concern is your safety. 
You're gonna, you get that email from your health insurance, from your gas company. Everybody knows to say it. Well, at Redeemer, we're not here this morning because of your safety. That's why we're not meeting here today. But I'll also say this. It is not our highest concern to push you towards as a church. Your safety is not our highest concern, nor is it the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask missionaries who are taking the gospel into dangerous lands if safety is their highest concern. No, it is not. Ask the martyrs in Revelation. Were they hiding in caves as preppers? No, they were not. They were speaking the truth until death. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I like to hear that kind of story of the missionary, of the martyr, because of the impact it has. That's different from experiencing it. I would be the first to say that that scares me to experience it. But brothers and sisters, as the Lord, belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a higher calling on our lives than just safety. We are called to speak truth until death. Finally, a personal application. I'll share my own struggle with worry. Just this past week, I can't tell you how many times I heard about what was going on and feared for my own job as far as the corporate work that I do with with many mouths at home to feed. I experienced fear and concern and anxiety and FUD. But realize that is not speaking truth. And had to take those tr- the truth of scripture and take that worry and say, Lord, this is where I'm scared. This is where I'm fearing. In hearing words like in Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. We are to speak the truth to others and to ourselves. So brothers and sisters, I call you a very simple, practical uh, uh, application this week. Daily, would you, as part of your devotional, if you're not doing a devotional, do this as part of your devotional. Say, Lord, what is it that I'm fearing right now? What is it that I'm fearing? Be honest about that. Confess that and then go to God's word to see what is the answer that he would have us hear about that fear. We have plenty of time for that. There's nothing else to do. Everything's closed down. There's no sporting events. There's nothing. You have time to do that application. Would you do that with me? So church family, what are we waiting for? Lots of things. But ultimately, we're waiting for the king of kings. Therefore, we're called to wait with faith, not fear. Would you pray with me? Our Father, our God, as we wait, we realize, just as Peter said to Jesus, where else can we go? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we rest, we wait upon you, Lord Jesus. Amen.